you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Dr. Chin Hong is infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at UCSF. Dr. Chin Hong, a very good Monday morning to you. Happy Monday, Larry. Thanks for having me on. Let's start, first of all, with what you're seeing at UCSF Medical Center. Are your cases of COVID that are presenting there staying small? Yes, we've definitely seen a big drop in COVID um, at our center, mirroring what we've seen uh, in the state and around the country. So back in January, I remember we were uh, clearly in the, you know, much more over 100. And today in four UCSF hospitals, we have a total of 10 patients. Wow. Um, yeah, none of them are in on uh, mechanically ventilated, uh, so it's looking very starkly different. And as you look at the BA two subvariant of of Omicron, it has become a larger percentage of cases here in the U.S. How much of a driver do you think it's going to be in overall case increases and perhaps hospitalizations? I think the answer is that we don't know for sure. But if we look at what happens happened in the UK and early on in Denmark, we would expect an increase in cases, but we'll see a continued decoupling between what we'll see in the community and its impact on hospital resources. And that's because of community immunity, both from vaccines, boosting and natural infection all recently. So I think that force field is still there. Uh, with that said, I think that, um, you know, uh, Many people are worried not just about BA2, but about the pies and the rows and the sigmas of the future. Um, but it is something that we are going to watch out carefully for. And the other uh, phenomenon happening now, as you know, is spring break. So you have lots of people moving around, uh, BA2 increasing. So that will also probably add to the increase in cases. I wouldn't call it a surge because it wouldn't feel like when we call a surge, you know, uh, and its impact on society may not be the same way. Yeah. When you mentioned Pi, Rho, and Sigma, I thought, oh my gosh, are there new? <laughs> and then I realized you're talking about the yet to come, not ones that we're, uh, that we're uh, watching right now. Uh, only 30% of L.A. County kids are vaccinated. That's months after COVID shots have become available to them. Does that cause you much concern? It does, because it's such a, a powerful weapon that we have. Um, 
And I think it illustrates so many aspects of our pandemic, except that it's even more magnified in kids because uh, kids don't have agency in running out and getting their own vaccines. So it reflects how parents feel. And I think there are several uh, factors at, at, play, at play here. First of all, is the original message that you know we've all given early in the pandemic that kids are more protected against COVID. Um, and I think that understanding has changed a little bit because they are still um, not going to the hospital in, in very large numbers, although that number did increase during Delta and then during Omicron, uh, but not dying at the same rate. However, they do bring infection into the home and it is a cause of disruptions in schools. So I think those ripple effects, uh, if you can mitigate them uh, with have a tremendous impact in society. So when you look at the numbers, they also reflect another aspect of the pandemic, which is um, disparities. So if you look at uh, the, the proportion of uh, uh, Black and Latino, Latinx uh, kids aged 5 to 11 in LA County getting vaccines, it's 21 to 22% versus say 41% in whites. And if you look at San Francisco data, it's very, very similar. Um, African-Americans, 29%. Kids 5 to 11, uh, um, 34% Pacific Islanders, 22% uh, American Indians. So compared to an average of, you know, above 30% in many cases. In, in San Francisco, it's about 66% of vaccinated kids. LA County, about the state average, about 30%. Well, and, and you know, that skepticism about vaccines, just regardless of all sorts of public service campaigns and getting high-profile people who represent communities to try and encourage people, it just seems to have had limited effect. And it, I mean, it seems to me, Dr. Yes, Chen, exactly. We're, so we're, I think um, the skepticism definitely plays out um, uh, because if you look by area, uh, you know, there's big disparities by geographic area, which independent of race and ethnicity and have, has to do with politics, of course. Um, L.A. County, uh, Northern California, it's all the same in the, in the rest of the country as well. Uh, the, the differences uh, in states with uh, who are more liberal uh, compared to states that are more conservative is the difference in vaccination rates of kids age 5 to 11 is 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 much more dramatic than even in adults. Yeah, and it just seems like that that reluctance to get vaccinated, um, despite all the efforts to try and turn that around, just um, people are fairly dug in one way or the other, it seems. Yes, I mean, I think that, um, you know, we're probably not going to move the dial much more at, at this point. Um, some people have talked about, um, you know, having it, be part of, you know, the talk with pediatricians when you go for routine childhood vaccines to in, in, include that conversation there from trusted professionals, some people. Are, but of course, that doesn't get get to the point of access in the first place to having a pediatrician to have that conversation with you. Um, other people have talked about the fact uh, that, you know, we've put our eggs, all of our eggs traditionally in the vaccine basket and, and maybe you know, rent or um, other social services might have more of an impact. And then you can include vaccines as part of it. And I think, you know, California has tried to do uh, move away from just vaccines alone. And it's, you know, it's uh, endemic plan. Uh, hopefully all of those things will work. But but you're right, Larry, it probably isn't moving the dial as fast as we 
would like it to. And ultimately, just like with childhood immunizations, at some point, if you make it a requirement for schools, that's the only way I think it will, you'll get an uptick in kids. Of course, that would lead to initially a lot of um, uh, discomfort uh, in, in some parents. We have Adrian in Diamond Bar who emailed us, how is the research on a COVID intranasal vaccine coming along? Yeah, so not not as fast as people would like. And and to listeners, um, the use of an intranasal vaccine is is thought biologically to be a great idea because, as people know, the antibodies, which are the front guards to our bodies, to our house, uh, they they decline over five to six months. And instead of getting a shot every five to six months, wouldn't it be great if you can just bolster? the front guards by just giving an ointment, say, in the nose uh, or some sort of vaccine there, which will, again, uh, you know, prevent the breakthrough infections because the current vaccines will prevent us from getting seriously ill. But, you know, that hasn't really, um, you know, there hasn't really been great data about that. But a lot of people are working on that as well as a universal COVID vaccine as a next generation of vaccines, hopefully for the winter of this year. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, UC San Francisco Medical Center, where he's professor and infectious disease specialist. Uh, the city of Shanghai is putting 25 million residents in a staggered COVID lockdown. That's where half of the city is locked down and then the other half is locked down. I haven't ever heard of an approach like this. What do you think of it? I'm not really sure it will work. Um, it's kind of trying to meet critics um, by not shutting down the entire city altogether. Of course, China shut down uh, most recently um, 50 million other people in, in cities in the South that it impacts on, you know, chip making, for example, for Apple products and things like that, as well as in the North. So the idea of Shanghai is really interesting for China because in the old days, they'd have just shut down the whole city. And I think they're trying to... Um, maintain some sort of operations in a closed loop where they could not, because Shanghai is a big engine of the China's economy. So they're trying to really keep a little bit of the economy going um, with with trying their, their tactics of, you know, shutting down to try to control virus, which we know in Omicron doesn't really work. All right. Uh, also wanted to ask you about uh, activist shareholders at the pharmaceutical companies Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J. They're trying to push the companies to broaden the access to their vaccines. And uh, just curious, from your perspective, what are the bigger constraints on the availability of, of those vaccines? For example, I was wondering with, with the mRNA ones, is it just there are parts of the world where the requirements for storage and transport are, are so extreme, it's not practical? Yes, definitely. All of the above. Um, so just to step back, there are different ways you can help the rest of the world. One is you can buy the vaccines and give it to people, which is what some groups uh, like uh, COVAX, funded by the um, WHO, is doing. You can share the recipe, which is, you know, technology transfer, which J and J is doing a little bit of, but Pfizer and Moderna haven't really budged on that um, in in terms of having generic companies make it. Um, the other is because if you just share the recipe, you also need to have the experience um, 
technical staff to do to interpret the recipe and do it and have the raw products. But uh, another issue, as you pointed out, Larry, is just the, the storage requirements uh, and the complexity of making an mRNA vaccine versus others. It's easier to make a J&J vaccine. It's easier to make a Novavax. It's easier to make um, uh, the new JSK and Sanofi vaccine. So that may have more an impact. And it's much easier to make pills to Paxlovid and Malupiravir. Uh, it's been easier for those companies to transfer technology in that way. Dr. Chen Ong, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, sir, and have a great week. You too, Larry. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.